Welcome to the fourth debate of the 2020 China Power Debate Series. I'm Bonnie Glazer, Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks to all of you for joining us today virtually. Today, we're going to be debating the, pro the proposition within the next five years, China will use significant military force against a country on its periphery. Under President Xi Jinping, China's military capabilities have continued to expand. The PLA Air Force has developed new stealth fighters and bombers. The PLA Navy continues its expansion, adding uh, new aircraft carriers, destroyers, and other vessels. Meanwhile, China's rocket force is advancing toward an increasingly sophisticated and credible nuclear triad, while also fielding hypersonic weapons and ballistic missiles potentially capable of hitting U.S. aircraft carriers. In May 2020, China announced an official defense budget of 178 billion. Um, it's likely higher than that, but it places China's sec uh, defense budget in the second position in the world behind only uh, the United States in terms of military spending. Although China has settled many of the disputes along its land borders, by my count, it continues to have land and maritime disputes with 18 of its neighbors. In this past summer, PLA soldiers were involved in a skirmish on the border with India. PLA aircraft are operating with greater frequency in Taiwan's air defense identification zone. Yet the People's Liberation Army has not been engaged in a major war since 1979. And China's last significant use of force was in the 1980s along the land border with Vietnam. And then in 1988 uh, in the clash over Johnson uh, South in the South China Sea. So whether China will use significant military force to advance its interests in the future is of crucial importance, not only for China's neighbors, uh, but also for the rest of the world. So before I introduce our speakers uh, for today's debate, um, I'd like to ask our viewers to cast your vote either for or against uh, the proposition. The proposition again is within the next five years, China will use significant military force against a country on its periphery. We're gonna let our speakers define significant. Uh, that's an important part of, uh, of this debate today. Before we display the results, I'm going to introduce uh, the speakers for today's debate. So first arguing for the proposition is Dr. Oriana Skylar Mastro. Dr. Mastro is a center fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. And she's also foreign and defense policy fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And she is author of The Costs of Conversation, Obstacles to Peace Talks in Wartime. Arguing against the proposition is Dr. Taylor Fravel. Dr. Fravel is the Arthur and Ruth Sloan Professor of Political Science and Director of the Security Studies Program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And his most recent book is China's Military Strategy Since 1949. So I hope all of you um, are logging your votes for our proposition. We're gonna vote again after the uh, debate. And so I hope all of you will stay with us until the very end and vote again. And uh, then after 
uh, I'm showing you these results. I'm going to tell you about our Twitter poll because over the last four days, we have been running a poll on Twitter um, and we actually got over 3,000 votes uh, for our Twitter poll. Uh, so uh, let's look, um, if you can go back first before our Twitter poll, let's look at where we are with our pre-debate poll for all of you who are watching us. We so far have 40, 45% who agree and uh, 55% who disagree. So not too huge a gap uh, at the beginning, uh, pretty close, but uh, a few more that, uh, that disagree with the proposition. And you can continue voting maybe for another 15 or 20 seconds while we look at the result of our Twitter poll. And our uh, Twitter poll shows um, just the reverse. Uh, a few more people agree with the proposition that China will use significant military force against a country on its periphery. Um, we have 57 and a half percent voting in favor and uh, 42 and a half percent voting against. And you can see we had a total of over 3000 uh, votes for that poll. So um, let's go back and just see the final poll results for our pre-debate poll before we close the poll. Um, Still 47%, 48% agree, getting a little bit closer, 52% disagree. We're going to close that poll now, and we are going to start our debate. Um, this is the way the, uh, uh, the event will run over the next hour and 15 minutes. Both speakers will have a maximum of 15 minutes to present their initial remarks, and then after they make uh, their arguments, we will give each of them an additional five minutes to respond to the other speakers. And then we're going to take questions from viewers. We've collected a few in advance, but I'd really appreciate if you would uh, send in some questions. And please make sure that your questions are directly pertinent to the proposition so that the answers enrich the debate and help us to understand um, the arguments either in support or against uh, the proposition. So please send in your questions as you are listening uh, to our debate. And I'm going to start with uh, Dr. Oriana uh, Mastro to argue in, uh, in support of uh, the proposition that within the next five years, China will use significant military force against a country its periphery. Over to you, Oriana. Thank you. Thank you for having me here today. I am going to argue that China is more likely than not to use significant military force against a country in its periphery in the next five years. Why do states fight? Whether you think it's for prestige and honor, whether you think it's for domestic political reasons, there's nationalism at home, where they need to divert attention abroad, whether you think states are rational, they're doing cost benefit calculations to try to build and exercise their power. I'm gonna to argue today that all these factors lead in one direction which is China is more likely than not to use force over the next five years. I'm not even going to cheat in my argument. Uh, I'm not gonna talk today about accidental war. It would be very easy for me to sit here and tell you that China is likely to fall into a war because of the fact that it's engaging in more persistent operations, for example, in the South China Sea. As Bonnie already mentioned, it's flying almost daily into Taiwan's air identification zone. The odds are against peace. Chinese platforms will most likely come into contact with those of the United States or, or its allies. And this will lead to the, the destruction of property and death that especially in today's political climate could escalate to war. But I'm not gonna talk about that accidental pathway to war. 
Instead, I want to focus on the fact that China is most likely to deliberately and purposefully use force against one of its neighbors for three reasons. The first is that it, Chinese strategic interests will drive them to use force. Second, they cannot accomplish what they want to accomplish without using force. And third, time is not on their side. And so it is more beneficial for them to do this the next five years than to wait. So the first point, Chinese strategic interests will drive them to use force. The most important core strategic interest for the Chinese Communist Party is territorial integrity and Chinese sovereignty. As Bonnie mentioned, China has outstanding territorial disputes with many of its neighbors. China is engaged in maritime disputes with the Philippines, Vietnam, Japan, Malaysia, Indonesia, Brunei, uh, the Korea, Singapore, and of, of course, the dispute across the strait with Taiwan. China also has land disputes with its neighbors, such as Russia, India, Nepal, Bhutan, Laos, Mongolia, Tibet, and, uh, Tibet, and Man Myanmar. Now, of course, Chinese territorial integrity is the view of the party that they need to protect sovereignty as they define it. That includes areas, like I just mentioned, like Tibet, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, which are more domestic politically focused, and of course, Taiwan. But uh, in the case of people outside of China, there might be a viewpoint that these territories don't necessarily belong to China. So if you take the idea that territorial integrity is central, which I think the Communist Party has made very clear, then why do you have to think about the use of force in doing this? Well, if you look at what Chinese Communist Party leaders have said, they've made it very clear that they're willing to use force to resolutely defend by any means necessary some of these territories that I have laid out. Of course, we know that Xi Jinping is very nationalistic, and he has said many times, for example, that reunification with Taiwan is a necessity for the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. This rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, in my mind, has become the source of legitimacy for the Communist Party. It's no longer economic growth alone, but instead Xi Jinping has made a promise to the Chinese people that he will promote their territorial integrity as they move forward. Now you might say maybe that's Xi Jinping, you know, he's just, uh, he's just a bit nationalistic, but if you go back to his predecessors, even Hu Jintao, that's known to be more cautious, he specifically said that use of force, if it is necessary to achieve their goals in territorial disputes, they're willing to do so. And this is not surprising. Territorial disputes are the primary cause of interstate conflict. Approximately 80% of wars from 1648 to 1990 were fought over territorially related issues. And this is because in the eyes of leaders, the anticipated gains from use of force in terms of resources, power, glory, territory, in many cases, these strategic considerations override all other considerations, whether they be economic or reputational in nature. The status quo we also know is not good enough. Maybe you say, okay, they've had this position on territorial disputes for a very long time. Uh, you know, why push it? And maybe you're right, maybe they shouldn't push it. But what we can see from Chinese behavior and actions is that they are. Xi Jinping has explicitly said that the current status quo with Taiwan is not acceptable. He no longer just wants to prevent independence, he wants progress towards reunification. If we see Chinese behavior on the South China Sea, this also shows that China is not happy with just the status quo. Whether it's the building of artificial islands and the militarization of those islands, or increasing their military presence and operations there, the Chinese are pushing the envelope to try to gain more and more ground in these territorial disputes. 
So on the first point, the Chinese leadership, I think, obviously believes that its most important task is to regain control over what it considers its territory. And if displays and expressions of Chinese nationalism are to be believed, the Chinese people also agree in this. All right, so maybe you say, sure, Oriana, they need to regain these territories. It's key to the Communist Party legitimacy, but surely they can do that through other means. They don't need to use force. Uh, and I, and I would agree that the Chinese Communist Party would prefer to use economic and diplomatic means to achieve its goals. We have seen this time and time again, vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, South China Sea, East China Sea, the use of other tools. But we have to be clear, the complete regaining of these territories cannot be done through these tools. And that is because the players on the other side are never going to completely accommodate China's position. Right. India is not going to give up its territory to China because territory lies at the heart of security. Also, in the case of Taiwan, for example, the ask is just simply too big, right? It's completely relinquishing uh, control over their democratic independent system uh, for the sake of reunifying with Beijing. We also see that the trends across these territorial disputes shows that the the likelihood of accommodation is becoming less and less. Taiwan, for example, we know peaceful reunification is not working. Recent polls show that the people of Taiwan are less and less interested in reunification than they have been uh, in the past. They prefer the status quo or independence. And this is even more the case among the younger generation who only knows the freedoms of democratic rule and they're less and less likely to want to uh, become a part of China and give up those freedoms for or in exchange for anything that the mainland has to offer. Meanwhile, 70% of mainlanders, according to uh, polls within China, support war to reunify with Taiwan. And so this, this, um, this contrast, I think, tells us that it's less and less likely that China is just going to rely on tools alone. In the South China Sea, we also see the trend that countries are becoming less and less willing to accommodate Beijing and instead are becoming more resistant. There's more willingness among the other claimants to coordinate. In April 2020, when the Philippines, for example, issued a statement of solidarity with Vietnam over the sinking of a Vietnamese fishing vessel near the Paracel Islands. Uh, the United States and Australia have both articulated that they believe that Chinese claims in the South China Sea are illegal. The Chinese government has also been facing unprecedented levels of U.S. pressure against its expansion in the South China Sea in recent years. In addition to Secretary of State Pompeo's declaration that, quote, Beijing's claims to offshore resources across most of the South China Sea are completely unlawful, unquote, quote, the United States has also issued sanctions against 24 Chinese companies that were involved in the island building and removed their access to Chinese markets. The United States has also signaled its, um, it, that it does not accept Chinese claims through freedom of navigation operations, where it conducts uh, military operations in areas that China claims are its own, but are actually international waters. Under the Trump administration, the United States increased the frequency of these FONOPs, and in 2018 and 19 alone, the U.S. Navy sailed within 12 nautical miles of these disputed islands at least a dozen times. The United States has conducted as many FONOPs in the first half of 2020 as the Barack Obama administration did over the course of two years. A Beijing-based think tank has pointed out that 60 U.S. reconnaissance flights flew close to China in September of, of 2020, and 41 of these were over the South China Sea. More broadly, the United States has held 85 joint military exercises, and the pace of military exercises on the Chinese side have increased in tandem. 
So you might think, oh, this is just that this pressure might be temporary. We have a new president coming in uh, in the United States. President Biden uh, is expected to maintain at least similar policies with respect to freedom of navigation and is unlikely at the very least to concede to China's uh, position and completely accommodate China, for example, by stating now that the South China Sea is Chinese territory or the East China Sea, where the United States has its ally, Japan, that also has those claims or giving up Philippines territory to China, which is also a US treaty ally. So yes, China prefers other means, but once these means are exhausted, then what are they going to do? And more and more, I would argue that current trends are convincing Beijing that peaceful reunification with Taiwan is not possible. That diplomatic means, whether it's the code of conduct or other means to try to get the United States out of the South China Sea issue so that they can pressure through economic and, di and diplomatic means, smaller Southeast Asian states to accommodate their position in the South China Sea is not going to happen. That Japan more and more is becoming open to the idea that they have to push back even militarily against China and they are unlikely to concede their position on the Senkakus. And as we've seen with the skirmishes with India, that is also unlikely. Now, of course, there are some border disputes that haven't flared up, like with Russia, where China is building confidence and trying to seek a strong relationship with that country. But even there, as the two countries become strategic partners, we haven't heard Russia willing to give China the territory that's under dispute. So in the last little over four minutes, my last point, okay, you say, maybe they will fight for their territory and, and maybe they have to use military means to do so, but surely time is on their side. Why can't they wait? Why do they have to fight within the next five years? Now, of course, if I had my way, I would have said, uh, I'd be much more confident to say in the next seven years. But I also doubt, I think that time frame is just to show that it is in the short term. I doubt if we change it to seven years that Professor Fravel would then be on my side of this debate. That being said, I do think that now the conditions are ripe because for the first time, China has the military capabilities to use force successfully in these territorial disputes. It is not a coincidence that they've become more aggressive in these disputes as certain military capabilities have come online. They have relied on other form of coercion to date because they did not have the adequate military capabilities to achieve their goals. Otherwise, the leadership was not confident that such attempts would succeed. But China has undergone massive military reforms. We know that they have built a modern force and now since 2013, they have focused on organizational reforms, which has led them to the ability to conduct joint operations using their air force, Navy, army all together to achieve common goals. These types of operations are critical, for example, for an amphibious operation against Taiwan or an air and ground operation on the Indian border or a land grabbing, uh, sorry, an island grabbing uh, campaign in the South or East China Sea. This new doctrine that focuses on joint operations, it talks about how the PLA is going to fight wars. And if Taylor Fravel is right in his book, which I have no doubt that he is, this shift indicates that, that there has been external pressure, which, uh, which uh, has convinced the leadership that the nature of warfare has changed. And according to his argument, it also means that there is a unified and stable communist party. So what, what is more uh, beneficial than to use force during a time where the party is unified and stable in its pursuits and where the nature of warfare has changed such that China is now in a better position than it was before to fight? China's uh, last five-year plan, the 2021 to 2025 five-year plan, says that they want the PLA to be fully mechanized and informationalized by 2027. 
Now, they have, to a great degree, achieved parity with the United States in several military modernization areas. The PRC has the largest Navy in the world, uh, has an overall battle force of approximately 350 ships and submarines and over 130 uh, major surface combatants. Now, they don't have the same tonnage as the United States, but at the same time, they're only focused on their region while the United States is projecting power everywhere. PLA ship quality has also improved. 70% of their fleet is now considered modern. Uh, and over half of their fighters and, and, and fighter bombers are now considered modern, according to the RAND Corporation. So their military is now capable, only in recent years, of actually using force effectively. And the organizational reforms were key in doing this. Now, they're not going to want to take Taiwan or fight the United States, these high-end significant conflicts in the next five years. But there are benefits to fighting smaller non-allied countries, such as Vietnam or India, to hone their military capabilities, to undermine the U.S. role in the region, to prepare, I would argue, in seven to nine years for the major major conflicts against Japan or to retake Taiwan by force. China, in conclusion, does not seem to be preparing for peace. Its weapons are not defensive. Uh, whether it is projecting power with its surface vessels or its commissioning of multiple aircraft carriers, what we can clearly see is they are building a military to use force to take the territory that they consider their own. The leadership is not happy with uh, the status quo, but as China has become more and more powerful militarily, they've become more and more comfortable using military tools to achieve their goals. And for this reason, I believe in the next five years, China is more likely than not to use significant military force against one of its neighbors. Very clearly argued. We are now going to turn the floor over to Taylor Fravel uh, to argue against the proposition. Over to you, Taylor. Great. Uh, many thanks uh, to Bonnie and to CSIS for hosting uh, this debate. And many thanks to Oriana for participating in this very important uh, discussion. I'll divide my remarks into three parts. First, I'm going to define the key terms. Then I'm going to outline four reasons why China will not use significant military force against a neighbor in the next five years. And then finally, I'm going to illustrate why China will not use significant force by examining China's sovereignty disputes, issues where, as uh, Dr. Master notes, force is more likely to be used than any other issue uh, sort of that divides states. But before turning to these three points, I want to provide a preview of my argument. To start, I should stress what I am not arguing. I'm not arguing that China will not continue to aggressively pursue its interests along its periphery in the next five years. It will. I'm not arguing that China will not engage in coercion. And I'm not arguing that China will become more passive or more benign. Instead, my argument is more specific. As China pursues its interests over the next five years, China will not engage in the significant use of military force. My contention is that the significant use of military force will either be too costly for China un to undertake or simply unnecessary because China has other tools with which it can advance its interests without paying these costs. So let me start with the first part of my remarks, which is definitions. What do I, what I mean by significant use of significant military force? This refers to it when one state uses its military to, to launch a large scale armed attack against another state. It's deliberate, it's destructive, it's deadly. This definition excludes what is sometimes described as a fait accompli in which a state might employ its armed forces to achieve an objective, but specifically without attacking the forces of another country. Also, it should be distinguished distinguish from a crisis in which states posture their forces, but do not use them, or from a small scale clash that is limited in scope, time, and intensity. And by country on its periphery, I simply mean a neighbor, uh, an immediate neighbor on land or at sea. This, of course, includes Taiwan, but excludes uh, the United States. 
But let me illustrate what I mean with a few concrete examples. Uh, starting with the China-India border this past summer, uh, there was a deadly confrontation that erupted in the Gowan Valley on the evening of June 15th. But according to my definition, right, this is a clash and does not meet the threshold for a significant use of military force. Instead, a significant use of military force would have involved Chinese attacks on in Indian positions, presumably all along uh, the Western sector with the intent of uh, destroying them. Also, we can turn to China's past. Uh, Bonnie mentioned uh, at the outset uh, that the last significant use of military force uh, were these intense uh, sort of long-running battles between uh, Chinese and Vietnamese forces in 1984 uh, and 1985. So let me turn now to uh, the four reasons why China will not use significant force uh, in the next five years. The first reason is that for the next few years, uh, China's leadership will be focused on hosting a series of events within the country that a significant use of military force against a neighbor would upset. Consider what will be consuming China's leaders over the next two years. Celebrations for the 100th anniversary of the CCP in July of 2021, hosting of the Winter Olympics in February of 2022, and most importantly, convening the 20th Party Congress of the CCP, most likely in the fall of 2022, with a focus on either how to further consolidate Xi's rule or perhaps to start the process of succession. This will be the most important party Congress of the opening uh, and reform period, if not perhaps in the entire uh, history of uh, the PRC. To ensure the, the success of these events, China's leaders will, need, will, need to, uh, will, will seek to avoid foreign entanglements, especially becoming involved in a major armed conflict with a neighbor. These events are linked to cementing and strengthening the party's position and reputation both at home and critically abroad as they convey the success, influence, and sort of momentum of the CCP and its rule over China. A significant use of military force by China would raise questions uh, about China's leaders and this reputation uh, uh, more critically, especially among those states it seeks to influence as it goes out to build a community of common destiny for mankind, the Belt and Road, and, or to reform global governance, right? It's going to be very hard for China to do that if its reputation is tarnished by a significant use of military force. The second reason is that China is a rising but isolated power and therefore needs to prevent the formation of counterbalancing coalitions on its periphery. No event will be more likely to spark the formation of such a coalition than a significant use of force against a neighbor. China has no formal allies except for North Korea, which really may be more of a security liability than an asset. As a geographic center of Asia, China must also be alert to possible threats from multiple directions and especially at the same time. China's rise in behavior has created deep concerns about Chinese intentions, indicating that the region is right for balancing against China, perhaps from multiple directions. The significant use of military force against any one neighbor would accelerate the formation of a coalition that China seeks to prevent. Furthermore, such a use of force by China would also catalyze an even tougher response by the United States and provide the United States an opportunity to play an even greater role in the region and perhaps in leading such a coalition. The third reason is that facing these constraints, China has developed a very effective way to pursue its national interests in disputes with its neighbors that does not require this significant use of military force. And this, referred to, this refers to gray zone actions. Gray zone actions seek to gain advantage without provoking a military response. These can be undertaken by both military and government assets and include actions such as salami slicing or perhaps a, a fait accompli. China's emphasis on operating uh, in the gray zone recognizes the dangers of crossing the threshold for the use of force and have been used precisely for this reason to achieve objectives uh, without uh, incurring those costs. China has employed this approach in, in most of its sovereignty and maritime dis disputes and from China's perspective with great success. Thus, there's no reason why China will not continue what has been an effective and efficacious approach for pursuing its interests in the region 
as it allows China to achieve its goals and avoid the risks and costs of using, uh, using force. The fourth and final reason why I think China will not use significant military force against a neighbor in the next five years is that the gap in capabilities between China and each of its neighbors on all dimensions of natural power only continues to widen. This widening gap in capabilities has two important consequences. First, historically, China has only used large-scale force against its most capable neighbors uh, to arrest further decline in what it views as a deteriorating situation when Beijing viewed these states as challenging China's interests. Now, however, China enjoys a strong and in many cases dominant position relative to its neighbors. And as this gap in power widens, these states are less and less likely to challenge China in ways that would, would elicit an armed attack in response. For the, se the second consequence of this widening gap in capabilities and China's increasing national power is that it gives it a range of tools beyond the gray zone with which to pursue its interests, especially uh, economic or diplomatic sanctions as seen in China's response to the South Korean decision to allow the United States to deploy a missile system a few years ago, or even earlier Japan's detention of a fishing boat captain. These alternative tools of statecraft will only grow more effective as, China power, as China's power increases and further reduces the need for the significant use of military force. So now let me turn to the third section of my remarks. Um, and here I want to examine the prospects for the significant use of military force over the next five years in China's outstanding uh, sovereignty disputes. Uh, because states fight over territory more than any other issue, as uh, Dr. Mastro uh, discussed, these should be easy cases for the significant use of force. In other words, if China's going to use significant force anywhere, it's going to use them here. In fact, however, uh, it's unlikely. Let's start with the East China Sea. China has relatively limited goals in the East China Sea, namely to maintain its claim in the dispute over the Senkaku Islands. Since 2012, China's approach to the Senkaku's dispute has been to use Coast Guard patrols within 12 nautical miles of the islands to bring about a de facto situation of dual administration, which greatly weakens Japan's position and strengthens China. China's position. Furthermore, China is deterred from further escalation because of US alliance commitments to defend these islands, which President-elect Biden himself repeated only just a few weeks ago in a phone call with Prime Minister Suga. These commitments place clear limits on Chinese aggression against Japan, which is why China is focused on using its Coast Guard and not its Navy to advance and defend them. Turning to the South China Sea, China has transformed its position in the South China Sea disputes in the past decade, as Dr. Dr. Mastro has described, by using gray zone actions and building three large forward operating bases from which to increase China's presence and ability to control these waters. For example, these bases now sustain a large and permanent presence of Coast Guard and maritime militia vessels in the southern half of the South China Sea, something China was previously unable to do. The success of China's efforts in, in improving its position in the South China Sea disputes reduces the need to forcibly retake the islands and reefs held by other claimants. China no, no longer needs these features to be able to assert control over these waters. That's because China's position already is, is, is already so strong relative to other claimants, it has no need to use force and can rely either on gray zone actions or on economic and diplomatic tools to advance its interest. China's diplomacy has also divided Asia so that it cannot provide a, a united front against China in the South China Sea, and no individual claimant is likely to directly challenge China in a way that would risk an armed response. And here we can see the accommodation of the Philippines under President Duterte as a case in point. So the third uh, sovereignty dispute I want to consider is on the China-India border. In its large territorial dispute with India, China relies on its military more directly than in, in the maritime disputes to press its claims. Yet as events of the past summer show, China seeks to improve its position in the dispute by using its military units to carry out beta complies to increase control of territory along the line of actual control, but not large scale attacks on Indian positions. In fact, the purpose of China's approach is to avoid these kinds of attacks. 
This trend in using fait accompli's over the began over a decade ago, and from China's standpoint, uh, has improved its position without needing to resort to force. Also, uh, India possesses nuclear weapons, uh, and this places a hard constraint on escalation on both sides that I think also obviates the need for either side to consider a significant use of military force. Thus, China will continue to press its claims along the line of actual control, but will avoid attacking India uh, to do so. And finally, this brings us to Taiwan. I think Taiwan has two objectives, oh, sorry, excuse me, China has two main objectives towards Taiwan, deterring unification in the short to medium term, and then creating conditions for the eventual unification. Uh, with uh, or through compellence uh, if necessary. Uh, China's military modernization, uh, as was noted by Dr. Mastro over the past few decades, has played a key role in deterring independence. It's really quite impressive. Yet within the next five years, uh, the odds of uh, China using major force against Taiwan uh, are driven by Chinese perceptions of two factors and whether its position with regard to Taiwan is improving or weakening. And these are first, whether Taiwan's leaders uh, will pursue a de jure independence or take uh, ser very serious steps towards uh, independence in this way. And second, whether or not the United States will alter fundamentally its one China policy. Yet on both counts, uh, changes in, in these directions are unlikely. Taiwan is a very pragmatic leader and is unlikely to pursue uh, de jure independence. In fact, uh, she was just reelected and will serve another term through mid uh, 2024. And the incoming Biden administration may seek to improve ties with Taiwan, especially in trade and also in security, but is unlikely to change the one China policy and will therefore reassure China in one important uh, respect that was uh, beginning to be questioned, I think, at the end of the Trump administration. Moreover, as the gap in capability, capabilities grow and as uh, Taiwan's own economic dependence on uh, the mainland only deepens, China has many other tools with which to address uh, uh, its ultimate global unification. Finally, no action is more likely to galvanize a U.S. response than the significant uh, use of force against Taiwan. And thus, for this reason, I think China uh, will also not uh, use significant force against Taiwan in the next five years. In conclusion, I'm not arguing that China will not continue to aggressively pursue its interests. It will. However, China is unlikely to use significant military force to do so, either because the cost would be too high or because China has many other tools of statecraft uh, it can use instead. Uh, many thanks. Great, so I'm now gonna give uh, each of you an additional five minutes. And uh, obviously there were many points that were uh, raised, so you can pick and choose what you would like to respond to. Uh, Oriana, you first. Thank you. I think the main point that uh, Dr. Frabel was making was that it would be too costly or unnecessary for China to use force. And I'm gonna basically focus on this and I disagree with both points. The first one, is it too costly? Uh, we make the argument from the U.S. perspective that, of course, there would be a strong response that the United States would successfully form some sort of coalition against China that would, for example, impinge on their rise. But what's important is not what we think. It's what Chinese leaders think. And they've had an ongoing strategy for decades and decades in which they've communicated to the world that these territorial disputes are unique, that they consider the South China Sea, East China Sea, Taiwan, their territory. And what they do with respect to this territory is not indicative of what type of country they would be in the international system. Now, we might say that that's not the case. And the United States has been trying to convince other countries in the world to take Chinese aggression seriously. But the bottom line is it's been very difficult to get other countries to coordinate with the United States to issue tough punishments on China. 
Now, if you look at past cases, for example, Russia using force in Crimea, the United States did successfully build a coalition to place economic sanctions on Russia. But Russia was not the economic powerhouse that China is. If you look at uh, how the United States has tried to build a coalition to deal with the, the Uyghur issue in China, to get the world to condemn and potentially sanction China for um, their human rights violations in Xinjiang, the United States has not been largely successful. And this is because the United States doesn't have the economic power that that vis-a-vis uh, -vis China in terms of the relative power that we think it does. And if China does use force, many might say this is a unique situation that does not impact how China is going to behave in Africa, in Europe, or what have you. We also know that from political science that even if there's economic costs, those are relatively short in duration, they're limited, even if trade stops for a short period of time, for example. And so the benefits to China, I would argue, of regaining this territory, of territorial integrity are so high that these temporary economic and reputational costs do not uh, do not uh, meet the standard of convincing a leader like Xi Jinping not to. I firmly believe that if you told Xi Jinping, you know, you would be isolated from the diplomatic community for a couple of years, that people might say some bad stuff about you, that your economy would suffer, but you would regain Taiwan, that he would go for it. The second issue, you know, is, is uh, how necessary it is. And this is the point I was trying to make. Yes, those gray zone activities have been very effective. China has pursued these activities for two reasons. They're, they're low cost and effective, and they did not have other means of, of doing so. We have seen that as more and more, for example, naval platforms have come online, the shift of power and uses of force in the South China Sea have moved towards naval force in addition to those gray zone activities. The strategic window, I think, from the point of view of the Chinese mindset is closing. The United States has woken up, right? You can see from the statements made in the United States that we now recognize that not only does China potentially uh, uh, create a military threat to its neighbors, but that the United States military ability to prevail in all possible contingencies and protection of our allies is weakening. And so in the United States, there has been significant efforts to try to rebalance and refocus military efforts on the Asia Pacific. So while today, largely because of geography, range, number of platforms, there are situations in which China could prevail against against uh, the United States, if the United States did come into a conflict to defend its allies and partners, that not, might not be the case in the future. And we have to be honest, even if the costs of conflict, if you include the United States potentially getting involved with respect to some of its allies, there is a benefit to defeating the United States. If at this point, the Chinese, which in my reading of a lot of Chinese military thinking, there, is, there are contingencies in which either they think the United States would not involve itself, like against Vietnam or India, and it would still hurt US credibility, still hurt US role in the region, or the United States would involve the, the, ourselves and China would prevail. This is a huge boon and benefit for uh, Xi Jinping. So while I agree that it has been unnecessary to date, you cannot completely regain these territories without using force. I think Xi Jinping has articulated uh, that during his tenure, he wants to see more than just the status quo, that they have worked very hard uh, with their foreign policy, with their, their economic levers to ensure that the costs would be acceptable in case that they use force. And the United States and other countries like NATO countries, for example, seem to have slightly woken up to the threat such that in the future, they might be better positioned to counter China uh, than they will be in the next five years or so. So I'll conclude there. Thank you, Bonnie. Okay, Taylor, five minutes. 
Sure, thanks. Um, so let me focus first on the strategic uh, sort of attachment uh, that China's leaders uh, give to territory, uh, which is something that I've spent a lot of my academic work on. And I just want to make a couple of observations here. Uh, right? In all of these disputes, uh, despite the importance uh, that she has attached to sovereignty in general, there's no timeline. Uh, and moreover, China has lived with unresolved territorial disputes for 70 plus years, right? Uh, you still have the Spratlys unresolved. You have all these disputes unresolved and, and, and yet no timeline, right? So, so China's leaders can live with unresolved disputes so long as they see trends in these disputes as moving in their direction, right? It's giving them more control over the final outcome. And the gap and capabilities, military modernization suggests all of these trends are only moving in China's direction. China doesn't need to rush the net or rush the court in the next five years to be able to do this. And in fact, there are really no leadership statements from China that give any sense of urgency for finally resolving the last six outstanding territorial disputes within a five-year time frame. And even Xi Jinping's statement about Taiwan being linked to national re rejuvenation is so vague that one has to think it's perhaps probably linked to a 2049 timeline as outlined in the 19th Party Congress report, right? It's certainly not something that Xi Jinping has said has to be done in the next five years. Um, moreover, I think uh, it, it's important to sort of look at the fact that, um, you know, to, or I guess the second point would be, you know, uh, Dr. Master just said, like, China, you know, the U.S. has now woken up, right? So there's, there's a window uh, in which China can act. But the fact that the U.S. has woken up basically means that there no longer is a window, right? If there was a window, it's closed because you would want to use uh, your force if you could before your situation would be more complicated. And this sort of gets to the third point, right? Uh, uh, that uh, Dr. Master made, right? China now has the capability, so now it can act. I, I just don't buy this. Right. Look at when China fought over territory in the past, 1962 with India, 1969 with Russia, with Soviet Union, 1974 with South, South Vietnam with the Paracels, and then a major war in 1979. China has always been ready to use military force if it believes right, its vital strategic interests are at ri the risk of being lost. And so China didn't need to have a modern military uh, to be able to go in and take you know, a six uh, reefs in the Spratlys in 1988. And in fact, China probably could go in and could have gone any time in the last 10 years and taken some more reefs, right? Because these weren't necessarily sophisticated military operations. And in fact, may even perhaps be sort of right for fate, for, for fate accomplice. And so, yes, China is much stronger now, but that also gives it much more deterrent power. That gives it much more uh, sort of, or cast this military shadow over other forms of coercion, especially economic and diplomatic coercion. And China's leaders can be confident that Ultimately, when these disputes are resolved, they will be resolved in China's favor or on terms that China chooses. We also have to remember, for example, right, that of China's 23 territorial disputes since 1949, 17 of them were resolved peacefully, and 15 of them were resolved through sort of compromise agreements, which is to say that China has been willing to negotiate over territory, but usually from a position of strength. And in the six disputes that remain, of course, China was in a position of weakness. It's why it's used force in some of them in the past. But it's now in a position of strength, as, as has been discussed, and is thus more able to sort of shape the final outcome. And even on the Spratly Island dispute, China has never, China's always acknowledged that they're under dispute, right? It uses this sort of rhetoric of being Chinese since ancient times and so on and so forth. But when you look at the Chinese statements, especially um, in the last 10 years, they still recognize that there are disputes to be sort of negotiated here, which is to say that uh, 
what China wants in the South China Sea is a South China Sea, right, that favors Chinese interests, but it doesn't necessarily need to have all of the islands back. And nor does it see a need to sort of accomplish this within five years, such that it's going to have to sort of attack the Philippines and Malaysia simultaneously to be able to do so. Um, and finally, on Taiwan, I, I think, um, again, as I mentioned, right, th there's no sense of an urgent timeline um, that would compel this within the next five years or the next seven years, right? I mean, Again, it's an artificial deadline, five years, but okay, it's nice to be like fives and tens. Um, um, but but I still don't see necessarily, right? You know, I, I think China's getting more worried, um, especially in the last year, uh, but they have reasons to be sort of relatively, uh, perhaps slightly less pessimistic going forward. And they're in an even stronger position than before, uh, precisely because of the military power that they generated, which gives them great leverage uh, when using other tools of statecraft. Thank you. Okay, so we have uh, about 20 minutes uh, or so for Q&A, and I'm going to ask both of you to be as concise as you possibly can so that we can, we can work in as many questions as possible. So the first question, uh, I, I want to dig into uh, the scenario for significant uh, use of force, and we got a question in advance of the debate from David Wu, who's a former member of Congress and served on the Foreign Affairs Committee. He wanted to know where do you expect the conflict to occur? Who will be the adversary? Now, I know that, Oriana, you said in the next five years, it would be most likely a less capable adversary, that it would be, you specifically mentioned Vietnam and, and India. So if you could talk a little bit about um, what you think the uh, the scenario is, what are the political goals, what 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 is the uh, the the means what 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 is China what could China achieve in a particular contingency against Vietnam and India and then I'm going to ask Taylor to react to that. If I could focus on the Vietnam question because I do think there are more benefits to using force against Vietnam than India. And, and these are largely uh, uh, diplomatic and operational benefits. So the majority of the remaining territorial disputes, so the most important strategic ones, are maritime and orientation. These require the joint use of naval and air power uh, in order to achieve uh, this re the rejuvenation, the uh, taking back of those territories. This is why China has been so focused on joint operations, has been so focused on moving away from an army-dominated construct to one focusing on the Navy and the Air Force. So we know that since 2013, they have been focused on restructuring the whole military so they can conduct these operations. It is one thing to do realistic exercises, and it's another thing to actually fight a war. And as Bonnie mentioned, China hasn't fought uh, a major war like this, maybe uh, since, since 1979 is usually uh, what people say, as, as um, Taylor mentioned, the others were just skirmishes. So they do have to test out these capabilities. The biggest one is command and control which uh, we have seen them, them having some issues with. And so a Vietnam contingency, and not only would allow them to regain some territory, which, you know, Taylor mentioned they don't need this territory to control the South China Sea, but it depends what you mean by control. If, if you want other countries just to let you have it, you don't need these territories. But having these islands so that you can place certain denial systems on them is very useful, as we've seen with the artificial islands. And so if they moved against Vietnam, they get to test these types of joint operations, which combine air and sea, which would be so critical to the majority of their disputes, uh, and, and in particular against Japan and Taiwan, which would likely involve the United States and be uh, of, of a higher uh, conflict sort of nature. And you have the additional benefit that the United States wouldn't do anything about it. 
right? Uh, Taylor mentioned some of the costs associated with trying to significant use of force. And while I would like to believe that this use of force would be significant to get the international community to, to band together with the United States to counter China, I think most likely because it's not an ally. Uh, and many in the United States don't want to fight a war with China, the United States would do nothing and this would harm US leadership in the region. And so for this reason, you know, I think that uh, use of force against Vietnam is the most likely. Uh, and then once they can hone those some of their the kinks in their their operational structure, that's when they try to do some of these maritime operations against uh, you know the more uh, militarily capable countries like Japan and then uh, eventually Taiwan. Okay. Any reaction from you, Taylor, to what you think it is the most likely contingency? Um, I actually think the most likely contingency is probably China India because uh, the cost of of trying to, uh, um, how do I put this? So, I mean, I, I completely agree with Oriana that China wants to learn how to do these sort of joint operations and it perhaps would like to learn so in a conflict, but doing in, in the middle of the South China Sea an international waterway to which the US has attracted so much attention, I think uh, would have an unpredictable diplomatic cost. The United States might certainly might not intervene on the behalf of Vietnam, but the question then would be what would the US do in the region afterwards? Um, and also what would the US uh, learn about uh, China's operations, which would certainly be closely watched, that would then be applied to US countermeasures. And so uh, for that reason, I actually think China's gonna be more reluctant to uh, sort of engage uh, in this kind of attack with Vietnam. I, I also think there are, there are political ones which we need to surface, namely Vietnam is one of the last remaining communist uh, countries in the world, and they have a very special relationship, uh, party to party ties, as well as uh, state to state ties. And, and, and I think China also wants to see Vietnam's continued success because I think it does provide some legitimacy to China as well. So beyond sort of the pure military factors, I think there are other reasons to expect, expect why China would not attack Vietnam. And then I cannot think of any country that would probably resist China more vigorously and longer than Vietnam, right? Which has a thousand year history of fighting against China. Um, so on the India border, I think it, perhaps it is not amenable to exercising all of the new capabilities, but uh, it, it is, I think, just more amenable to the use of force because it's where you have a military forces directly in close conflict, or, sorry, close proximity to each other. And that sort of creates a quality that I think leads to escalation, which is why we did see this clash in the Gaowan Valley this past summer. And we now have 50,000 troops from both sides um, along uh, the line of actual control. And so that makes me think that um, if not handled well uh, by both sides, that, that that is where it might occur. Although again, I, I still think it's unlikely because uh, the costs of doing so are quite significant. And even after the Gaowan clash, you look at how China responded basically by trying to reset relations with India and forget the clash didn't happen, indicated that they I had severely miscalculated by creating conditions that made that clash possible in the first place. A question from Dr. Wang Yuan Kang from Western Michigan University uh, refers to the um, issue of diversionary war, which neither of you addressed. So it's an interesting question. If China encounters a major domestic problem in the next five years, would it have diversionary incentives to use significant military force against a neighbor? So do you think that this might be a factor? Um, Oriana? 
I, I don't actually. Um, I think if China has significant domestic issues, right, if we uh, reach a level of like social unrest within China, China is more likely to turn inward. They're not going to want any excuse, even if it is in support of the party, they're not going to want any excuse to have the Chinese people organize and take to the streets. Now, you know, Taylor laid out some domestic reasons why he thinks uh, that they're less likely to use force, such as the Olympics or a party Congress. You know, I don't think that these domestic reasons are enough to convince them, but a significant um, threat to the Communist Party from internal sources, I think that means uh, that they're going to uh, pull back, retrench and, and focus at home. Okay, Taylor, um, I'll pose a different question to you um, from Daniel Westbury Haynes, uh, University of Croningen, sorry if I butchered that. <laughs> Does the BRI increase or decrease the likelihood of significant conflict? So question about the Belt and Road Initiative. Thanks. Um, just for the record, I completely agree with Oriana on the, on the previous question, <laughs> which is maybe why you skipped me. Yes. So um, <laughs> um, on to the BRI. Um, so I think the BRI, which is this global uh, or nearly global economic development initiative with political and strategic sort of potential, uh, is a real constraint on a significant use of force because it would raise questions in the minds of many BR BRI participants about the merits of cooperating with a country that could be so belligerent. Uh, and moreover, the BRI now is kind of in, in, a, in a, a reconsolidation or rebuilding phase. Uh, much less money is being invested than before. Lots of concerns about uh, the BRI in terms of sort of what is sometimes referred to as debt diplomacy um, and, and so on and so forth. And so I think to the degree that China wants the BRI to be successful uh, and, and to sort of attract sort of, sort of the widest number of countries and to be supported by the widest number of countries, engaging in you know, a significant use of force against a neighbor uh, would probably undercut that significantly and lead even more uh, countries to sort of question the merits of participating. The next question is from Paul Hare from the Center for National Interest. Uh, where could China use force with the expectation that it could succeed and be able to comfortably uphold that success? And why would Beijing use force absent such an expectation or calculation? Wouldn't even a successful attack on Taiwan or on the East, in the East China Sea or on the Indian border invite escalatory pushback from the, uh, the United States or Japan or India, uh, depending on the contingency, with no guarantee of victory? Oriana, that was specifically um, addressed to you. Okay. Well, they, thank you, Paul, for asking the tough questions. Uh, first, I think in your question is an assumption which, with, that I agree with, which is that Beijing is only going to use force if they're confident it will succeed. I do not believe cost imposition is what uh, is likely to deter China. This idea that, yes, they can succeed in using force, but it will be very costly for them to do so. As I mentioned in my earlier remarks, I think the benefits of regaining these territories are too high. And that's why historically, again and again, states are willing to use military force in, in territorial disputes because of the benefits of regaining that territory. So it is about this, this confidence of whether or not they will succeed. As a China military specialist, I, you know, I think that they are likely to be able to succeed in like a major contingency with respect to Taiwan, for example, by 2027, 2028. But what I think doesn't matter 
right? It's what the party thinks and what the military thinks. And in my discussion with, with Chinese military officers and in reading a lot of the writings, they think that the reforms, the modernization of the force has taken to the, the, to the point that they would be able to succeed within the next five years. You know, Taylor mentioned that there are that Xi Jinping doesn't articulate any timelines, but there are timelines for the ability to achieve certain military capabilities. And so you have to question why is it so important that they achieve those timelines? And so I think that um, they would be successful depends on what their mission is to use force. For example, if they're just taking some islands uh, in the South China Sea, even against the Philippines in the next five years, they have the capability to do that. However, the South China Sea is so large, it's the size of half the continent of the United States, that if the military goal was to be able to control all the waterways uh, in the next five years, uh, they might not have the power projection capabilities to successfully do that. So I think the point is that um, they, there are many different campaigns, as we know, even with Taiwan, right? A joint missile campaign, a joint island landing campaign. Use of force is a very broad term, but there's many different campaigns that the Chinese military can embark on. And of course, and, and there are some of these campaigns that they would be successful at right now. And I and so I think they were most likely to choose those aspects of use of force over the ones that they would have more doubts about. Okay, um, uh, Taylor. Question from Hunter Marston at the Australian National University. Will international legal cases uh, constrain China's willingness to use force against neighbors with territorial disputes or compel it to pursue armed conflict? So uh, we could look, for example, the international legal case of July 2016 that the Philippines brought against China or potentially going forward a Vietnamese case uh, against China. Great, thanks question. Uh, hi, Hunter. Um, so I think um, basically China will just ignore these cases and it won't have an effect uh, because, because I think they view themselves as, as not necessarily uh, needing to be bound uh, by uh, especially arbitration cases that uh, impinge on sovereignty. Uh, whether or not that is a correct reading of the UN convention or of other international statutes is a separate matter, but I think China very clearly indicated that it didn't necessarily feel it would be bound. And so I don't think it would, it would in and of itself alter sort of Chinese perceptions of the, of the need to use force. Now, it could be the case, of course, that China views a Vietnamese submission as sort of a direct challenge to its claim and something that needs to be uh, countered. And then the question would be, would uh, China counter that uh, by uh, attacking Vietnam or would it uh, try to counter that by uh, inflicting pain on Vietnam in some other way? And I think, uh, as I've tried to argue that for the time being, right, uh, in that kind of more tactical issue in a much broader dispute, China would find some other ways to inflict pain. And with you know, a long land border and a, sort of an economy in Vietnam that's relatively dependent on China. China has many options for inflicting pain that don't require it to use force. Okay, Oriana, I think I'd like to ask you a question about Taiwan, um, which is my question. Uh, if we assume that the PLA can take Taiwan and you say that they have those capabilities, I think there's still much dispute about it. But if we accept the premise that they can, and I think there's still the question about why the uh, why China would risk a war with the United States, which they have to consider the high possibility that the United States would intervene, and why they would then put at risk the goal of national rejuvenation, which of course is Xi Jinping's greatest uh, ambition that he has set uh, for his country. Uh, and 
I think if we look out over the, the next five years, and we could even extend it to seven, President Tsai Ing-wen will be in power, again, as Taylor said, through 2024. Uh, but then uh, there will be another president. Perhaps China might become more concerned about the risk of independence than it is today. So that might be um, one factor. But if China remains confident that Taiwan cannot go independent, is it really necessary for China to use force to achieve reunification? In my analysis, I don't see China as urgent, but you do. So that's my question. Why do they need to solve this problem? Uh, right. So the timing in terms of the strategic window, and again, you know, I don't, I don't want to fight the prompt, but you know, I would say probably like, you know. I think they're building to Taiwan. So the uses of force would have to happen before Taiwan. And then I think they do probably want to wait if they can, uh, you know, a decade until Taiwan. Um, but in that case, I still think they feel like they need to use force. Now, the first thing is the strategic window. As Taylor mentioned, you know, if the United States has woken up, the window is closed. Uh, I wish that were the case. But as we know, with defense, planning, spending, procurement, um, just because even if the United States now is starting to plan to be able to shift the balance of power uh, in Asia, that's that's anything we do now is still not going to come into play, is still not going to have a significant effect until five to 10 years. And so I think there's a lot of strategists within China that say, okay, right now, given U.S. force posture, there are contingencies in which we can take Taiwan by force. But if, for example, the United States, at, you know, successfully puts land-based intermediate-range ballistic missiles, you know, in the second island chain that can saturate the Taiwan Strait, uh, which we haven't done yet, but maybe in five to ten years we would have. Then all of a sudden, there is they can't achieve some of their goals with military force that they could today. So I think there is this strategic sort of this window of, of opportunity that uh, could be closing, and that's not even taken into account advances in certain systems like hypersonics and AI that could resolve some of the United States's um, dilemmas when it comes to projecting power uh, across, uh, you know, from the United States to Asia, uh, and even even our bases in Asia. We're not a resident power in Asia. This is what is a big disadvantage for the United States with respect to China that can project power from home. You know, you argue that it would put at risk national rejuvenation. I guess this depends on what you think national rejuvenation is about. Um, I would say that, you know, the continued waiting on these territorial disputes and, and showing that there is no significant progress or end state to when they will have control over these territories is likely to be the greatest risk to national rejuvenation. And, and also, I think they put national rejuvenation at risk every day. If you're worried about the economic costs or the international community's uh, you know, response to China, even though they have, uh, Pursued means short of use of force. We do see this increased Chinese aggression um, that uh, has elicited some responses that are not beneficial for China, but they're willing to risk it again because this issue is of so uh, of, of so great importance. And so, you know, I also agree that China, I don't think, is ready yet. Taiwan. But again, I think it, it's not our viewpoint of it. It's what is the Chinese military telling the leadership? Um, and are they telling Xi Jinping, we can do this? And I think Xi Jinping, you know, if, if, the, if the military leaders are saying, you could be the leader that resolves this issue, you could be the leader that brings Taiwan back to the motherland, uh, it's gonna be very hard for him uh, to say no to that. 
Hey, question um, uh, to Taylor from retired Admiral Nirmal Verma uh, of the Indian Navy and U.S. Naval War, War College. Does the India-China face-off in the Himalayas have scope for gray zone operations by China? And maybe a way to um, even rephrase that to make it more pertinent to the question is, can China um, avoid uh, using significant military force against India by using gray zone tactics to achieve its goals? Great, thank, th thanks, great question. So uh, my view here is that, you know, sort of one particular variant of gray zone tactics, kind of the fait accompli, which I'm not sure all gray zone theorists would view as a gray zone tactic, uh, but I think this is the one that we're most likely to see on the China-India border. It's what we saw this summer where China moved into areas where the two countries, as, as I know you know well, like view the line of actual control as being located in different places, but uh, was not um, necessarily rigorously uh, fortified by each side. And then China was able to take control, for example, of the areas between Finger 4 and Finger 8 and Pangong Lake and move into the Gowan Valley and so forth. And so those kind of fait accompli actions, I think, are going to be uh, quite likely in the future on the China-India border. Although, of course, India has a say here as well. It can plug gaps. It can move into areas and sort of conduct its own fait accomplis against uh, China, which is what we saw at the end of August. But in terms of other kinds of gray zone uh, activities, such as, I don't know, using local police forces or, or relying on sort of uh, herders who are really a militiamen and those kinds of things, I think, are less likely in the Himalayas uh, or the Karakoram Mountains, simply because the altitudes are so, uh, the environment is just so, so tough and stark that you don't have many people uh, living in these areas that would allow you then to sort of use those kinds of gray zone tactics. So I think primarily uh, what we should look for in the future will be uh, further fait accomplis and counter, uh, encounter fait accomplis by both sides. Okay, one last question for both of you, uh, if you could just answer in a minute or two, comes from Kate from the US government. And the question is, how do you think the PLA's lack of modern combat experience affects the party's confidence uh, in the capabilities of the military? And do you think there might come a point at which the party might want to test them? And maybe another way, again, of framing this question is, does the PLA's lack of experience, um, does that make it more likely or less likely that the party will want to use force in the future? Is this something they want to test and demonstrate for the national, uh, for the domestic audience to the international community? Um, or is this something that is holding them back because they are concerned that they may not succeed? So um, I'll start with you, Oriana. Uh, can I answer both? Uh, so I think right now, it's definitely something that's been holding them back, right? Because you mentioned the domestic political aspects. The Chinese people are asking the question, you know, wh why are we spending so much on our military? Uh, if every time, for example, a Chinese national is put at risk abroad, uh, Weibo is filled with comments of, you know, if we're spending so much money on our military, why can't our military go protect Chinese nationals abroad, right? So it is a domestic political issue. And so I think that if they do use force, they want it to be successful and they have to have confidence it will be successful. But I said yes to both questions because what I think that means is they there is a benefit to trying out their new military and honing the capabilities. 
it is very difficult to train people to run towards bullets and not away from them. It's something that the United States is exceptional at. Uh, Xi Jinping is trying to change how society views the military, trying to create this nationalistic feeling in similar ways that we do in the United States. Doesn't seem very sexy, but things like having a separate line at the airport for military personnel, having all these movies that builds up the military to try to sort of improve the relationships you know, between military and the society. I think it helps us sleep at night that the Chinese military has not had significant operational experience since 1979. But deep down inside, I also wonder if, you know, the United States has also not had significant experience fighting the type of conflict that would involve China, a major near peer competitor. You know, we haven't had naval battles. We don't do dog fights in the area, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq. We were just flying up there by ourselves. It's for this reason I wrote this op-ed today in the Washington Post about how I thought, you know, pick of a SECDEF who has experience in counterterrorism and counterinsurgency in South Asia and the Middle East was not the way to go. So I hope that it imposes caution on them uh, more than encourages them to try these capabilities. And when the time comes, I hope that the United States, uh, our vast operational experience uh, gives us a leg up even as we face uh, some greater challenges. Uh, but I worry that, that perhaps uh, this is sort of a personal hope of my, my own and, and won't correlate with reality. Taylor, you get the final word. Sure, thanks. So I think on balance, the lack of experience makes it less likely for the following reasons. Right? First, the PLA is quite aware of its many deficiencies. Uh, one thing that one can find quite easily in PLA writings is where they need to improve. And it's actually quite a daunting list of improvements uh, that are needed. And so one has to ask what PLA general would be uh, willing to go to force, uh, excuse me, would be willing to go to war if they weren't really sure how it was going to end up, right? And, and of course, generals are party members first and foremost, but they really want you know, the, the party to be tarnished by uh, defeat on the battlefield. And so I, I think it does induce caution. Also, a second point would be that the PLA only last month uh, issued the first of what will be a whole series of new uh, operational doctrine, uh, the outline for joint uh, operations. And it did so only on a trial basis, which means that the PLA has to spend now a lot of time figuring out how to fight uh, it, in new ways. So it's, it's done a lot of the reforms, uh, but it hasn't necessarily put them to the test. And it also now has to write all of this new doctrine for the services and, and, and so on and so forth. And this, you know, if history is any guide, will take probably another five years. And so I think you know, military professionals would, well, especially if there were not exigent circumstances that required you to fight, would want to uh, have the most capable force uh, possible. And, and so for this reason, Again, I don't think the lack of experience makes them more willing uh, to use force. And then finally, it's imperfect, I know, but the PLA has been actively trying to uh, con conduct much more realistic exercises and everything else like that, which does help at least make up to some degree for the lack of operational uh, experience. And I would expect that to continue uh, going forward. Great. Uh, this has been a really outstanding uh, debate. I want to thank uh, both of you for making really uh, cogent, uh, excellent arguments um, in support of and against the proposition. And we're now going to ask all of our viewers uh, to vote again, uh, but we'll see. Uh, what do we have so far? We have... Uh, 34% that agree and 66% that disagree. 
we started out with uh, a, a narrower gap between those that agree and, and disagree, but it sounds like uh, those who disagree um, have grown a little bit more. So uh, Taylor has been uh, somewhat persuasive in uh, disagreeing with the proposition, but keep voting. If there's more votes that, uh, that haven't been cast, please cast your votes. The way that this software works, we have a choice between putting up percentages or numbers of votes. So we can only actually uh, add the number of votes later. We are showing you the percentages. So I actually don't know exactly how many votes uh, have been cast, but when we do post it, um, online for the final version, which we archive for future, uh, future viewing. We'll, we'll try to add that and, and we can let you know how many votes there have been. Uh, those, the number of votes on our Twitter poll was far higher and that was over 3,000, but we did run that uh, for four days. So um, I think maybe we'll close it here. Um, uh, maybe we'll just show the slide that compares the vote before and the vote after, so we can just uh, highlight what the what the change has been. Uh, the post debate poll shows 33% agreeing and 67% disagreeing, and the pre debate poll was much closer. It was 48% agreeing and 52% disagreeing. Uh, but I think uh, all of our viewers would agree that this really has been uh, an outstanding uh, debate. And I want to thank uh, Oriana Mastro and uh, Taylor Fravel for joining us uh, today uh, for uh, this really, really uh, terrific uh, discussion. So thank you again. I want to also highlight we have one last debate in uh, the China debate series, China power debate series for this year. Our fifth proposition is selective US-China economic decoupling will set back China's emergence as a global high-tech leader. That will be December 15th. At 10.30 in the morning, we're going to start with some keynote remarks by Representative uh, Rick Larson, who is the co-chair of the China Working Group in, uh, the, uh, in the House of Representatives. And then we are going to have uh, the debate with Rebecca Fannin and Matt Turpin. And I hope that uh, all of you will join us then.